All right, well, let's go ahead and get started on the word of prayer. Father, thanks so much for a gorgeous day out. I pray that you would uh, teach us now in this hour together to study the third member of the Trinity, Father. We thank you that uh, we have the gift of the Holy Spirit who indwells us, who empowers us, who is here with us forever. Another comforter. We're not left all by ourselves, but we have you here. And we thank you for that and pray that you would uh, just teach us now in this time together. In Christ's name, amen. Um, today we're going to spend a, start a little two-week series on the, the ministries of the Holy Spirit. And then after that, Dan is going to be doing the work of the Holy Spirit in terms of illumination, inspiration of scripture, things like that, um, while I'm on vacation. And then when I get back, we're going to continue the ministries of the Holy Spirit, picking up the sanctification and the work of the Holy Spirit in sanctification. One of the things that we talked about last week, of course, is how, as you look at modern evangelical TV, if you even call it that, how much of a distortion of the Holy Spirit is on there. And we even made the, uh, the statement that, quite honestly, it's idolatry. When you see what, uh, what the Holy Spirit is characterized as on TVN and places like that, where he's sort of your uh, gopher guy, he's going to go and get you whatever you want, um, you can order the Holy Spirit around, he makes you act weird. All right, I'm going to tell you something, God does not make you act weird. God does not make you act out of your mind. God does not make you act bizarrely. Um, when you look at the New Testament, the people who acted bizarrely were not controlled by the Holy Spirit. They were controlled by demonic forces. And when the Holy Spirit came in, what we found is people were in their right mind. They were able to think. I'm thinking the epileptic boy. Remember when the father said sometimes he's thrown into the fire, sometimes he hurts himself. And what did Christ do? He cast the demon out. And all of a sudden the child was in his right mind. The maniac of Gadara was the same way. So if somebody comes along and says, well, you know, I, so the, the, more, the more bizarre your behavior, the more you're controlled by the Holy Spirit, that is just plain wrong. That is plain in error. That's not what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit wants you to think. He doesn't want you to act in a bizarre, irrational manner. Yeah. And, yeah. Of course, the, the proponents of that would, as you know, Put it that way, and they would say the more bizarre you act, the more you are controlled by the Holy Spirit. They would say things like, if you're controlled by the Holy Spirit, uh, He will cause you to speak in a language that you don't know, but it's holy prayer language, or it's some language that you don't Or they would say, you can be slain in the Spirit, and there will be anecdotes of either themselves or someone else who was just unable to stand while they were being prayed for, they just fell out. I mean, you know, they will itemize things yeah. as being pieces for... One of the things that, that we have to be very careful of, and you're going to hear this again and again and again in this course, and in this class, um, and I just lost my train of thought for whatever reason. We've had a lot of time this morning. Um, I know what it is. Oh, you got it. Yeah. Um, and that is... I'm having a rough time. <laughs> it's because I don't have my, my mic on. That's what it is. Reason. i got to remember, reason. Um, you cannot allow your theology to be dictated by your experience. Right? So somebody comes on and says, well, I remember when I went down to the Benningham thing, and I was slain in the Spirit, and that must be the Holy Spirit. Not necessarily. In fact, group, you know, there's a lot of group dynamics, you know, psychologically. There are group dynamics that come into play to make you do all kinds of things. 
Um, so don't allow your theology to be dictated by your experiences. You're always going to be in trouble that way. You need your theology to be driven by the scripture, and the experiences will follow. And the second point there on the, on the tongues business, and we're going to spend two weeks on this. Don't worry, we're going to hit that in detail. But in the Bible, tongues is a known language that people could understand and reason. They knew what it was. They knew what somebody was saying. It wasn't this godly do prayer language that you pray. Um, in fact, Paul says, "I'd rather speak five words that people can understand than ten thousand that nobody can understand." Um, so don't let them go that way. And, and the problem is, in a lot of these, a lot of these uh, venues, it's all experience driven. It's your experience, and you need to be careful of that because you know Satan can can really counterfeit experience after experience. Yeah. And those kind of experiences can. To save a person in the thinking they can't have salvation. Yes. Because some churches will say you're not saved unless you can speak it. Yeah. And one of the things is that Satan will do anything to snooker you into thinking you're a Christian and you're not. He'll do anything. He'll like speaking tongues. He'll heal you. You got to realize that. He can heal you. Um, If he can cause Job's diseases, he can cure Job. And Satan has a certain ability. Um, to do that. Remember that woman who was bent double by Satan? Well, he could probably unbend her if he wanted to. Um, so, we got to be careful and go to the scripture and let it define our theology, not our experiences. Yeah. Well, another thing, because I've been in those churches where, you know, everybody was supposedly feeding a tongue since we had kind of like baby pot, but um, one of the things I learned in researching that was that it's not true speaking in tongues unless, like you said, it's a language that's obviously it's not like that or something, yeah. like, whatever. And there has to be, some, you know, one person is speaking in tongues and another person is translating. Yep. And if there's no translation, then it's quite good, is it? It's, it's, it's good for nothing. We understand. It's good for nothing. And we're going to talk about, don't worry about, you know, not getting to that topic. We're going to cover that in detail and show you that if indeed tongues is a valid gift for today, we're not doing it the way it was done in the New Testament. So, right there's a problem. Dave, you're going to... Yeah, but not from God. Well, some of them got got it right, but remember the Pharisees in Matthew 12 said he was doing these miracles by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. So the people that understood who Jesus was understood he was doing them in the power of the Holy Spirit. The others did not. And by the way, one thing to understand: everything Jesus did was in the power of the Holy Spirit. You say, wait a minute, he's the second member of the Trinity. All right, we talk about that. Don't get yourself scrambled on that one, right? <laughs> he's God, but he's led over by God, but then he's praying to God, but okay, you know, that's where your brain stops and just go with it. Christ said he did everything by the power of the Holy Spirit. And in fact, what Christ said is that if you ascribe the works that I'm doing to Satan, what are you doing to the Holy Spirit? Blasphemy. And that is something that is bad. Dan, you're going to say something? Oh, I was going to say on the um, uh, a couple of things that I didn't want to interrupt the conversation on, but uh, to the point of he's not going to ask you to do anything, the Holy Spirit's not going to make you do anything bizarre. I wanted to qualify that statement in that someone else might find it as bizarre. I mean, there are things that we do that are sanctified, holy living things that are right. considered bizarre. Um, but when we talk about just 
irrational. Yeah. And we were talking about, um, you know, barking like dogs and other things. They're concerned. Well, I mean, that happens. I mean, that's, I'm not, that's, we're not making that up. Yeah. And I mean, that, those kind of things are, are concerned because I think, and we're going to get to that, you wanted to remind, um, the, God gave us a rational mind. And yeah. to, to remove that for some other reason. The, the, only, the only time I think we can see something like that happen is with uh, Nebuchadnezzar, who. Uh, yeah. But that, that was part of God's divine judgment. He was filled with the Holy Spirit, and that yeah. was uh, really yeah. That was not the, you know, yeah. it's not like he was filled with the Spirit and he became an animal for some reason. Right, he, uh, he just got it. Yeah. But whenever you see God communicate, you know, when Jesus came, Jesus did not come to work up people's emotions. The message he preached was a rational message that people could understand and, and think about. It was not irrational. And that's one of the things we need to understand. Our faith is a rational faith. That does not mean there is not an, an emotional component to it. Are there times when you feel close to God and feel His presence? Of course. But that's not irrationality. Okay? And that's what we are talking about. On, on that point, um, I, I, an illustration that I wanted to mention, there was a, um, there was uh, something like Toronto Blessing Movement oh, yeah. 10 years ago or whatever, and I remember, I grew up in a very charismatic church, the whole and, uh, and they were, that was, and they were, I remember watching a video and they were having people testify about the experience that they had. It was very intriguing to me, even at, you know, it was a younger age, it wasn't the theological knowledge that I have now. Um, and every person that they got to, when they asked them to you know, explain what was happening, they never actually were able to speak about it. They just started laughing or crying, and no one actually was able to give any kind of rational, of, well, I was convicted about this, or I had, you know, God healed me of this. It was a, um, it just erupted into this emotional thing, and, and everybody celebrated that, but there was no rational thing made. And so the, somebody was going to bring up, obviously, like, well, you can't explain God. And, and I would, I would retort and say, well, he's going to give you, he reveals himself rationally. God is not hard to understand. He tells you what he wants you to know. And you might have an emotional response to that, but he doesn't just give you emotion and say, figure out what this means. He yeah. says something or doesn't. And you have that emotional reaction that just is, and that's fine. It's not bad. But, but his revelation is not the emotional reaction. We have the reaction to his revelation. God gave us a book, not a music video. <laughs> right? We got a book. We, got, we, we don't have a music video with images flashing all over the place. It's rational, it's words. When God wanted to reveal himself, he revealed himself in words and rationality and rational thing. One of the guys behind that Toronto Blessing, by the way, Rodney Howard Brown, was called the uh, Holy Ghost Bartender. I'm not making that up. And he would come in and he'd, he'd get people laughing and joke. You know, the guy was a comedian. And look, let me, let me, that, that wasn't viscerally, that, that offends me to the core. The Holy Ghost is not a bartender. He's not a commodity to be dispensed like you would a beer or a glass of wine. He is the second, he is the third member of the Trinity. He is God, he is deity. He needs to be treated with the dignity that we would treat God with. He's not irrational. And we're going to talk about that as we go through the course. Um, what we're going to talk about today, we have basically, uh, when we talk about the ministries of the Holy Spirit, I don't know if any of you here really realize just how involved the Holy Spirit is 
in your life, your spiritual life. A lot of us don't realize that everything that we do spiritually, our spiritual life centers and revolves around the work of the Holy Spirit in us. And, and what I've done to try and um, try to approach that is look at what's the ministry of the Holy Spirit before you are born again. What is his ministry prior to conversion? What does the Holy Spirit do to everyone, to, to the, everybody out there? And then I'm going to look at what the conversion work of the Holy Spirit is. And in that we have regeneration, baptism, and sealing. All right? And then we're going to look at, not in, in a few weeks, the post-conversion work of Christ, the indwelling, fulfilling the Holy Spirit, the indwelling, fulfilling, the empowerment, where the Holy Spirit actually empowers us for spiritual living. So that's sort of where we're headed. So let's look at the pre-conversion work of the Holy Spirit. What does the Holy Spirit do prior to your salvation? Think about that. Think about before you were born again, what was the role of the Holy Spirit in your life? And the word that bubbles to the top is conviction. Conviction. And what does conviction mean? Conviction speaks of bringing men to the awareness of their condition before God, as well as God's perfect holiness. A realization of your condition before God. Now, one of the dangers in Christianity today is we're being told that you don't need to preach sin in order to bring people to salvation. You don't need to preach the law. You don't need to preach the fact that people are sinners. In fact, Robert Schuller said the worst thing you can do is tell a non-believer that they are sinful. That's, that's, a, that's a slap against their self-esteem. You don't want to do that. You don't want to tell people that they're lost. And yet that is the starting point of salvation, folks. That's where it starts. You need to realize that you are lost, and before God, you are in deep, deep trouble because you have violated His perfect standard of holiness. And it's the Holy Spirit that brings conviction. In fact, let me tell you this. If you have any kind of conversion experience without conviction of sin, it's not a valid conversion experience. It's not valid. You can't be saved without realizing you need to be saved. And one of the problems today is that we want to try and get people into the kingdom of God by not telling them that they're sinners. So I told you about the um, church I heard out in California who are trying to teach their people to evangelize without using the Bible. I'm not making that up. How do you evangelize someone and not use the scripture? This is where the truth is. Uh, do they mean don't have a Bible in no. their hands or don't quote a scripture? Don't quote a scripture. Okay. That's what they mean by that. Don't quote a scripture. You don't need the Bible. Folks, what did Christ say? Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Well, how tough is that? Is that a hard passage to figure out and understand? I hope not. We've got to go to the scripture. Conviction is necessary. And, and remember, let's think of Christ. Nicodemus comes up to him. How did Christ evangelize Nicodemus? He must be born again. Now, we don't have it clearly spelled out very well in John 3 about how he approached Nicodemus' sin, but Nicodemus realized that this was a teacher come from God. And then in John chapter 4, when you have the woman at the well of Samaria, what did Christ do to her? 
where do you start? Yeah, sin. Now that really freaked her out when we told her, well, you've got five husbands, and the guy you're living with now isn't your husband. Whoa, this guy knows everything. And he, he hit on her sin. And when the rich young ruler came to Christ, remember, he said, what must I do to be saved? What did Christ tell him to do? But what did he first tell him to do? <clears throat> you know what it is. Keep the law, right? And what was his response? Done that. What was Christ trying to get him to see? That he had <clears throat> And he wasn't willing to admit that he had sinned. And finally Christ said, well, go sell everything. And he went away sorrowful. He wasn't willing to admit he was a sinner. That was the problem with the Pharisees. They couldn't admit that they were sinners. They thought they were okay. The Holy Spirit brings conviction of sin. Now let's look at John chapter 16, verse 7 through 11. This is an important passage. Um, in John chapter 14, 15, and 16, Christ, of course, is in the upper room with his disciples, and he's talking about uh, him going away. Right? And uh, in verse uh, 7, he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The word for helper there, parakletos, we use the term paraclete. Someone called alongside. What did, what did this, the, the 12 have, well actually the 11 true disciples, what did they have for three and a half years of Christ? He was there, right? He led them. And he's going away now and they're saying, what, 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 what do we do? What, 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 what's going to happen? He said, I need to go away because I'm going to send you another comforter who's going to be with you forever. And when he comes, what will he do? When, when the Holy Spirit comes, what will he do? He will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Convict. Bring to a knowledge and awareness of. Concerning sin, because they do not believe on me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, you will see me no more. Concerning judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. What is the Holy Spirit's role? Convict men of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Conviction of sin. Sin, what's sin? Sin is our violation of God's, of our relationship with God. It's a violation of our relationship. It's his holy word, his holy character. Doing those things that God would not do. And as Christians, when you sin, what happens? You get a little prepped on you. The Holy Spirit continues to convict us, to make us aware of sin. And then he convicts the world also of righteousness, who God is. Here's where I am, here's where God is. And it convinced the world of future judgment. See, here's the thing, Paul. If you are not convicted that you are sinful, you're not convicted that God is holy, and you're not convicted there's a future judgment, why in the world would you ever come to Christ? There's no need to. The Holy Spirit is the one who brings conviction, brings an awareness. Now, one of the things we're going to talk about a little later, we'll just hit on it now, is when we talk about conviction, all right, this is a supernatural work of God where he brings an overwhelming awareness of one's spiritual condition. 
Is there a sense in which people know that they're sinful or that they're doing wrong things? Generally? Yeah, generally you have that. You know, Generally there is a code of ethics that every, even unbeliever, lives to. When we talk about conviction, we're talking about a special work where that person is brought face to face with the rawness and the horror and the, the, the absolute evil of their condition before God. That is a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. That is not something that you can do. The Holy Spirit has to bring that awareness. And would you say too that once you are a Christian, or if you believe you're a Christian, you know, that if you don't have that condition daily, you don't have your sin, and you In fact, one of the ways that you know you're saved is when you commit sin, are you convicted of it? That's a, that's a weird. Yeah, that is that is an indication that you are born again. There's the Holy Spirit within you that's showing you your sin. That's bringing conviction. But one of the things here that that, that to understand is that let's take the average pagan off the street. Go pick one out. We'll take him off the street, and we'll look at him. Is he aware, in and of himself, of his condition before God? No, he's not. The Bible calls that dead and trespasses and sins. And the word that's used, that's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. When you are dead in sins, you are, I believe the scripture says, dead in sins. What does that mean? You're totally insensitive to, the, to your sinful condition. Much like a dead body on a table is completely insensitive to the environment around it. You can poke it, you can... Do anything you want to it and nothing happens because it is completely insensitive to that which is around us. Um, around it. Understanding that because it came from the garden, Adam and Eve lived on the earth before that. And then, but now that everyone's getting the twelve down the street, what's the difference between the conscience that God gave us and the spirit? Yeah. The conscience is a is something that God built within every human being, and what it does, it tells you if you have violated that which you believe to be right, like it does. Alright? So the question is what calibrates that conscience? If you're, if you, you know, there's certain societies you would grow up in, for example, where it is not wrong at all to kill babies. Now we would say, that's horrible. Unless you're in the abortion business. Alright? We would think that's horrible. But there are societies where that's perfectly normal. They don't even think anything of it. There are societies where slaughtering their enemies, that, that's, that's something you should do. They think nothing of it. They think that's perfectly fine. In fact, it was a good thing for those who worshipped the God Molech. Yeah, God Molech actually, if you were worshiping Molech, you took your babies and threw them in the fire and burned them alive as an offering to the gods. That's one of the gods that God hated. Yeah. In one of our classes, we learned about, I think one of the names, there's an African tribe that they're nomadic, and they were, if you have a baby within a year of having another one, that that child is supposed to be sinful and everything like that. Well, the child has to die. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And see, the problem with the conscience is the conscience can become seared. It can become insensitive. It can be um, violated. You know, you look at some of the pathological killers and, and, and you know, the, the serial killers that just kill people. They don't think anything of it. 
You know, what happened to them? We think of that, oh, how horrible that they could do that. Well, their, their conscience become so seared and so insensitive to sin that it no longer serves its function. And that's why as believers, we need our conscience to be constantly being calibrated by the Word of God, which lets us know what is truly right and truly wrong. Yeah. So your conscience is almost culturally alert. To an extent it is. God did build within each individual a consciousness. In fact, what God said, what Paul says in Romans 2, is that when we violate our conscience, that is an indicator that we that there is sin. Alright? Follow what he's saying there. The fact that you have a conscience that tells you there's right and wrong indicates that there's right and wrong. And by violating that conscience, you're guilty before God. Because you know that there's an innate right and wrong in the universe. Even though you might be wrong about what is right and wrong, you nevertheless admit or, or show that there is a right and wrong in the universe. Nancy, you have to be careful because then they go, when you're looking at all these things, and say, okay, well, it's a baby will be a sin. We forget that just treating your neighbor and friend, um, you know, incorrectly, is just as big of a sin. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. But you need, you know, you kind of go, well, I only did it, you know, you know, even if they don't have conscience for that. And that's why we need to pray that God would give us a pure conscience. Paul talks about having a pure conscience that, that gives us an accurate indicator of what's right and wrong. Dan, you're... Never violate your conscience. It's good to not do that. Romans says to him that doeth that that knoweth to do good and doeth it not to him that is sin. There's some things that you can do that are sinful that I can do that are not sinful because you are violating your conscience to do them. Don't violate your conscience. Rather, have God reprogram it. But don't violate it. Because if you get around to violating your conscience, you're going to be in trouble. One of the problems that, you know, um, that you see a lot in psychology is that um, a lot of times in dealing with guilt, there are certain schools of psychology say, well, if you have, if you're guilty about something, just keep doing it so you don't feel guilty anymore. <laughs> I'm not making that up. That, that is there, and that's sort of like you know the engine light coming on your car and getting annoyed by taking a hammer and smash it. You know, because you're tired of your car telling you there's a problem with the engine. Don't do that. Don't, never violate your conscience. God put it there for a reason, and as Christians, we need to ask Him to give us pure conscience. All right? But conviction, as Dan pointed out, is at a whole different level. It shows you my condition before God. And God has to do that. The Holy Spirit has to bring that conviction, that awareness of sinfulness. And the Holy Spirit does that. And that is step one 
in your journey to salvation, without conviction, there's no, there's no change. And when the Bible says you're dead in trespasses and sins, it actually means that you are insensitive to sin. And that's why one of the things as Christians, when we see our, our pagan neighbors and the people who are unbelievers, and we don't understand why is it that they can be doing this sin and not, why does it bother them? It's because it's not supposed to. Because they don't have the Holy Spirit. They're not convicted yet of it. I often said, what do you expect a pig to do? Go to the mud. So what should you expect a sinner to do? Sin. That's normal for them. We need to understand that. That doesn't make it right. It's just it's normal for them to do because they do not have the Holy Spirit. They do not have a pure conscience. So what do you expect them to do? Whom the Lord loves, He chases. Yes. So if he, if you don't belong to Him, if you're not born into His family, He expected you to spiritually speaking, doesn't know you, so he's not going to discipline you. He's not going to discipline you, and because of your the, the, the corruption of your own nature, your sinful nature, you're not going to be sensitive to sin. What, is the, what does your flesh want to do? Sin. That's what it wants to do. And you have no power, understand this, you have no power to control it in and of yourselves. You don't. But what, what the Holy Spirit does in this in this this um, conviction as he brings an overwhelming awareness of your condition before God. And I think all of us, all of you have been born again in here to one degree or another, had that point in your life, all of a sudden you sort of look at yourself and say, you know, I'm in deep trouble. I really see myself for who I am. And if you're dead in sins, as the, as the unbelievers are, you don't feel the weight of sin. Some young man came to Spurgeon one day and said, I don't understand what you mean about this weight of sin. I don't feel any weight at all. And Spurgeon said, well, let's go down to the funeral home and let's take a dead body. And I'll put about 500 pounds of weight on your chest. And let me ask you, is that dead body going to feel the weight of sin or the weight on his chest? Well, of course not. It's dead. Well, you're dead in sin. You're not going to feel the weight. Those are dead in sin. And there are people that say, you know, I, I live my whole life doing this, this, and this, and all of a sudden, God convicted me, and I just, all of a sudden, I just saw what I was doing was just evil and wicked, and they broke it. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. He brings brokenness over sin. And that is the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the unbeliever. Some examples of conviction in the Bible. Where do you see some examples? We're not going to go through all these in detail. But the crowd of Pentecost, remember when Peter rose up and made that great sermon on the day of Pentecost, and it said they were cut to the heart. Who did that? It wasn't Peter. And, and, you know, keep reminding yourself day after day when you're witnessing, when you, when you talk to people about Christ, that you can't save anyone. The Holy Spirit has to do the saving. You have to be available to give the message. But it's the Holy Spirit that brings conviction and awareness of sin and turns the light on, so to speak. But he has the power of Pentecost. Uh, the Ethiopian eunuch, remember him? Now, how was he convicted? By the way, whenever you see conviction here, what also goes almost hand in hand with conviction? Well, you have conversion, but you have the Word of God, right? Mm-hmm. What did Peter do at, at Pentecost? He quoted the Old Testament. What did uh, 
What about the Ethiopian eunuch? What's he doing? He's reading the Isaiah, right? The Word of God. That goes back to Romans. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Or hearing a message, actually, the word there is Kramon, saying, a message about God. A specific saying. It's not the general Word of God, it's specific sayings in, God, in the Word. Saul of Tarsus, Acts 9, 1 through 6. Here he is, going off to kill Christians. And what happens? God shows up. And he's convicted. He comes out, he falls on his face, convicted of his sin. This is a guy who did a 180 in a very short period of time, right? Didn't take him long. He had Cornelius in Acts 10, 44, where Peter sent to Cornelius to bring the message of the gospel. Cornelius was convicted of his sin. Sometimes that conviction is all the most of growing awareness when people come into awareness of their sin. There comes a point when all of a sudden it just is stark. They just see their condition before God. Philippian jailer. Remember him. Serge, what must I do to be saved? Felix. Here's one. Here's a sad one. Felix and Agrippa. Remember Agrippa? Almost you waiting to be a Christian. Almost. The Holy Spirit may convict of sin, but they may, that may not lead to regeneration. In the case of Felix, it did not, right? I mean, not Felix, a gripple. Almost you persuaded me to be a Christian. Almost. And there's that song we sing, almost persuaded. Almost. Close. He was certainly convicted of a sin, but he was not willing to be saved. He was not willing to go all the way to Christ. Folks, conviction is a very important ministry of the Holy Spirit. And one of the things that we need to do when we present the gospel to people, we need to bring them to awareness of the sin. We need to preach the law. Is God a God of grace? Absolutely. But why do you need grace? Because you've broken the law. If you don't realize you've broken the law of God, if you don't realize that you're in a awful condition before God if you don't realize your utter helpless state you can't be saved it's a necessary component don't let anybody try to whitewash that away and say it's not necessary it is you start with your condition before God and the Holy Spirit will bring the conviction not you you are not the Holy Spirit you plant the seed and let the word of God and the spirit of God do the work that's all you could do. The other, when it comes to conversion, there's this great word here called regeneration. Regeneration. Regeneration is the act whereby the Holy Spirit brings you to spiritual life of the dead sinner. He brings you to life. What does that mean? There's a time when, go back and remember when your own when your salvation experience. You didn't know the Lord, and all of a sudden you come face to face with the knowledge of your sin. And all of a sudden, almost unexplicably, almost, you don't know where it comes from, it makes sense. All of a sudden the gospel makes sense. And what do you do? You believe. That's called regeneration. Regeneration is the act whereby God takes a dead sinner, someone who is dead and trespasses and sins. And makes them alive. Brings spiritual life to them. Let's look at some verses here. Very important verses. Titus chapter 3, verse 5. 
Somebody, somebody read that. I won't look that. Somebody look uh, Titus, John, and Peter up. Um, one of the things, and we're going to talk about this uh, next spring when we go through the doctrine of salvation, is that, and again, this this is a this is a, a topic of high debate among theological scholars. But you're going to face it so, and because this is a class whereby we give you some of these tough things to think about, we're going to put this out. But one of the questions is, does regeneration precede faith? Or does faith precede regeneration? That's a big debate. What do you mean by that? Do you believe the gospel and then God regenerates you? Makes you alive? Or... Does God regenerate you? The first thing you do is believe the gospel. Do you understand the difference? The question. How many people would say faith comes first? You believe and then you're saved. She's not taking up the dare. She's running away. The other. Oh well, she won't even raise her hand. I need a one. Yeah. You believe and then you're saved, or you? And I mean, I say regenerated, or you regenerate it and then you believe. Um, you might want to differentiate between uh, regenerated and saved. That's good. When we talk about saved, we're talking about the whole deal. Alright, we're talking about everything. When we talk about regeneration, we're talking about the steps in the process of you becoming saved. Now, of course, we would believe that you are saved by what you need to believe, don't you? Right? I mean, the Bible says that all over the place. Yeah. If you look at the first quote of Memphis, mm-hmm. it was repent and believe. Right. Two sides of the same point, combination of things. But though we do gain our salvation through the gift of faith, we also must include in that process and what is repentance? Repentance is an acknowledgement of sin and turning away from it. Yes, that, that's the conviction. Well, it, it's sort of. awareness, but also the, the sincere regret. Regret and, and a desire to turn away and go the other way. Yeah. Um, one of the, one of the, you know, I'm sorry I hesitate to bring it up, but it's going to come up, so I might as well just talk about it a little bit here. But I think what the scripture teaches very thoroughly is that in, in, in the mysterious plan of God, you're regenerated. The first thing you do as a regenerate believer is you believe. Alright? And why is that? Why do we say that? Okay? We say that because when you look at the spiritual condition of a lost person, can they do anything? They're dead. In fact, if you look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, it says, And you have he quickened who were dead. Now, if I look at that, what happened? God quickened me. Quickened there means make alive, regenerate. God regenerated me. The first thing I did was believe. Now, from the human perspective, we never want to say you don't believe. We never want to say, don't tell people to place their faith in Christ. No, you do that. From a human perspective, from this sphere down here, what do you call people to do? Repent and believe. That's what we do. 
Repent. Place your faith in Christ. But how can they place their faith in Christ if they are completely dead in trespasses and sin? The Holy Spirit has to do it. Now again, understand, this is, this is, this is the deep end of the pool here. Alright? And there are, that's more than five feet. It's, it's about 5,000 feet in this end of the pool. Alright? And, and, and you can just let this percolate on you a little bit. Alright? And look at passages like Ephesians chapter 2. And, and whenever you see, um, whenever you see the, the, for example, let's take First John. We love him because he first loved us. So who took the initiative? God did. In fact, if God did not take the initiative, none of you would be interested in God at all. Right? No one here would care. God takes the initiative. And when it comes to regeneration, God takes the initiative. Now, in a sense, there's a, there's a little black box there almost, where you have a sinner come in, you have a redeemed person go out, and what happens in the middle of the black box, you know, it's kind of tough for us to sort out totally. But what you have, you have the components of repentance, conviction, faith, regeneration. All of those components are there. <coughs> All right? And what we see here is that the Spirit is the one who brings regeneration. Um, Titus 3 5. Somebody have that? Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy and favor, through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Alright, when you look at that, how are you regenerated? God's word as as empowered by God's word. God's work. I'm sorry, God says God's word. God's work. It's God who does God takes the initiative there. Right? Is there anything in there about this I do this, do this, do this, and then God regenerates me? No, God regenerates me. Now does God does God do a work in me to bring me to that point? Of course he does. Conviction, right? And acknowledge him when I said, but God takes the initiative, and you, it says, we were regenerated by the Holy Spirit, by the washing of the Word. In fact, that's the two things down here the Word of God and the Spirit of God. That's why it's ludicrous to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to teach people to evangelize the lost, I'm not going to use the Word of God. What kind of silly nonsense is that? It's the word that brings the knowledge. And, and God uses his word to bring about conviction, to bring about the awareness of your condition, to bring about the knowledge of the truth. The word is necessary, but the spirit is necessary. The spirit is the agent of regeneration. He's the one that brings about that new life. And stop and think about the time you were saved. Didn't the light just go on all of a sudden? All of a sudden, it just... I got it! Well, that's not your great brain at work. <laughs> that's not your intellectual abilities at work. That is what? That is the Holy Spirit who regenerated you and gave you an immediate awareness of your sin and your condition. And what did you immediately do? Believe. You ask Christ to be your Lord and Savior. How were you able to do that? Because there's spiritual life there. 
Let's look at John 3, 3 through 7. John 3, 3 through 7. Somebody have that one? This is, of course, the account of Nicodemus. Jesus
If their faith produces salvation, what do we need to be good at? It's not a trick question. Huh? Evangelism, manipulating them, bringing them to that point where it's up to us to talk them into it. In fact, Charles May said that. He said, uh, he was a lawyer, he said, I, given the chance, I can, I can save anyone by, convince, by logically showing them they should be saved. That's it. That was his theology. It's not, it's not you decide for Jesus. God saves you, and the first thing you do as a baby, think of a baby. Does the baby decide when it's going to be born? It's just born, right? And what's the first thing it does? It yells for spirit for life. What's the first thing you do when you are born again? You cry out to God. Same thing. Yeah. Yes. In fact, he said, you know, I've had, at the end of his life, said the sad um, experience of having many, how do you put it? Many followers or a few converts or something like that. Because it was a very man-centered approach. You talk them into the kingdom. You get them to sign the card. You get them to walk the aisle. And that's not what it's about. Yeah. Well, faith and belief are really close. They're even cousins. Right. But does faith come first before the belief? <laughs> no. No. Belief comes first, then faith. Belief comes first, and then faith. Yeah, we're going to have to find this. Yeah, we have to find this. Well, I can tell people. Yeah, yeah we're getting we're lost here. We're getting lost here. Um, let's see how the best way to do that. Um, yeah, get the full chair now. Talk about this a little more. Um, when we talk about, let's, let's, let's try this. Let's, let's step back a minute here. What is regeneration? What's that? New life. God grants new life. God takes a person who is spiritually dead and makes them spiritually alive. Right? What is repentance? Turning from sin. And how do you know you need to turn from sin? Conviction of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit convicts you of sin. You want to turn and go the other way. You want to abandon your old life. You want to go in a new direction. That's what it means. To abandon, to turn. Okay? What do we mean when we say um, faith? What is faith? Believing what God said, right? Believing whatever God said. What enables you to believe what God said? Regeneration and the Holy Spirit who brings a knowledge, right? So everybody's following so far? We have to take that a whole another step further because we're we're talking about just not having knowledge of and recognition right. of facts. We're talking about an, an acceptance of we get the salvation. Because I mean James talks about even the demons believe and tremble. And that's another thing. Uh, Gary Habermas, wonderful apologist, and he he'll tell you, he says, I have been in debates where I, I could get my atheist opponent to recognize you know, point one, two, three, four, five, and recognize all, recognize all these facts about the resurrection. And I, he says, I'll, I'll, I'll initiate an invitation to accept Christ, and they'll say no. And, yes. and now they, they have recognized all the facts, everything you need to quote unquote know, but it's not accepted. So we're, we're talking about then a regenerated faith being different than an acknowledgement of facts. We're talking right. about a, um, a recognition of Christ as Savior and Lord, where mm-hmm. you're, you're putting faith 
in him in addition to recognizing facts. Right. And aside from all this too, we are getting into the uh, really hairy details of theology here, and there are probably people here that are like, well, why do we care? Um, <laughs> yeah. But let me just say, this, this is an advanced theology class, and we're dealing with really advanced issues, and it's really cool that you're in here. If, if you are confused by this, that's okay. This is not something you have to have a, an intimate, detailed knowledge of to be saved. This is something we are, we're trying to split the hairs of what happens with the generation, and it's a very complex thing. If you don't get it yet, it's okay. <laughs> Yeah, you know, when I look at generation, I always see it like they're regenerated. Generation is it's where we get, but you're con- constantly regenerating. You know, your commitment with different sins as your name grows. We should look at it this way: is you're regenerated. It's one time you're brought to life. Right now, the Holy Spirit does the work of sanctification, where He's He's working yeah. in you. Regeneration yeah. is, is, is the ability. You're, it's, it's like you're dead now; you're alive now. You can recognize sin. But then you might go over time and you can, we'll, we'll explain it like weight. You can feel weight at different times because, yeah. you know. And, and one, of the, one of the things to understand here is that, um, you know, even though this is sometimes confused, like Dan says, you're, you're splitting the hairs here a little bit. These are questions that do come up. All right, people think about these questions and are confused by them at times. And the thing to understand when it comes to salvation is God... God takes the initiative. God does the work. And there are components of conviction. There are components of confession of sin. Faith. And Dan is right. Faith is not just, I know the facts. The devils do that. Faith is an affirmation. Remember we wrote that acronym out. You believe the facts. You affirm they are true. You internalize them. They are true for me. And then you place your trust in those facts. There are two facts. And I place my trust in them. And that's where salvation, that's where that separates the fact knowledge from the salvation knowledge. I place my faith in Christ. I'm all in. <laughs> Take all your chips. I'm all in. I'm not holding anything back. And um, when it comes to regeneration, I'm sorry we didn't get to Romans 8, 1 through 11 to do that. When it comes to regeneration, understand this at this point. God gives you new life. God gives you new life. We can discuss maybe, you know, what order that comes from, but the bottom line is, where did your new life come from? Where did your awareness of your spiritual condition come from? Where is your sanctification, the desire that you have to be holy, to be righteous, to, to walk worthy, to, to, to please God? Where did that come from? That comes because God has regenerated you. He's made you spiritually alive. And He sustains that spiritual life in you. Okay. Hopefully we didn't confuse you too much. But this is this 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 is a little naughtier discussion. It might be helpful if we did some kind of a timeline to kind of explain chronologically how to do that. Happen. And that might be something we can do that. In fact we can start next class with Yeah. That'd be helpful. Any any questions before we stop? <laughs> Alright. Well, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this day and thank you for this time of study. And admittedly, we hit some very, very deep topics here. And quite honestly, there are some of these that we just can't fully fathom in our fallen state. But we know one thing you saved us, you've made us alive. 
And because we're alive, we want to please you. We want to honor you. We want to walk worthy of you. And Father, for those of our friends of ours and people we know that do not know you, I pray that we be faithful to bring the word of God to them. That you would open their hearts, open their minds, that they might see their sinful condition, be convicted of their sin and turn from it, and turn to you for their salvation. And we just thank you for this time, Father, in Christ's name. Amen.